Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard Al, and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. There are over 115 awesome interviews in this podcast series. I invite you to scroll through my past episodes on any podcast app to listen to them all. Today's new episode features George M., another longtime friend whom I met within my first five years in the program. Though it seems like just yesterday, George is now 89 years old and approaching 40 years of sobriety in AA. Like many other guests who got sober late in life, George's story is a dichotomy between a well-lived life before getting sober and a life in AA. As a heavy yet highly functional alcoholic, he was able to successfully juggle his career in the financial industry and a marriage that included raising four children. As alcoholism grew more ominous in George's life, he found himself divorced and married two more times before he quit drinking. The impending yet inevitable loss of family and career at nearly 50 was enough to convince him to get sober. He found Alcoholics Anonymous in mid-1983 and has been sober since. His sobriety gave him the key to a whole new life, rich with as many experiences in sobriety as he had experiences in drunkenness before, but inevitably happier and more meaningful. I believe you will find George's story of fine interest and invite you to enjoy his rich and inspirational words of hope. So get comfortable and immerse yourself in today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews with my close friend and AA brother, George M. Hi, I'm George, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, George. Hi. I really appreciate you doing this interview with me today on the uh, AA Recovery Interviews podcast. To me, it's a special honor because I've been wanting you to participate with this process and allowing people to have their stories out to the world in a way that's most meaningful to those people and, and also to you. I'm really happy that you asked. I appreciate you taking the time. We're actually on a break period now at a retreat that we're both at on a beautiful Saturday afternoon in Houston, Texas. Oh, it's terrific. In the last 35 years, I've probably been to 35 retreats. And this is your first one. Yeah. Very first one, yes. And you and I have known each other for the better part of that 30, 35 years. 30 years, yes. What's your, your sobriety date? August the 21st, 1983. So you're coming up on? 40. It's amazing. Did you ever think you'd stay sober that long? No, but I'm really happy that I did. How old were you when you got sober? 40, I was trying to figure the other day, 47 or 48. Now I'm 80. I'll be 89 in two weeks. Knowing what you know now and what you've acquired over the last number of years, if you had had the opportunity to get sober at an earlier age, when would that have been? I would say probably about 35, 36. So 35 would have allowed you the years in your youth and in your young adulthood and then into your adulthood to practice out there, whatever you were doing, drinking yes. and, and so forth. Yeah. So you would have had the opportunity to at least enjoy it for a while before it affected you? Yes, that's right. <laughs> You're correct. Did you enjoy it? My drinking? When you were drinking. Yeah, uh, until I got to a point in my drinking when it, it didn't make any sense to drink anymore. I mean, I was really getting bad. Uh, up to that point, I enjoyed it. 
But there's a point, or there was a point in my drinking where I no longer enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I had to stop for responsibilities on, at work, my responsibilities to my children and my wife. Mm-hmm. If I didn't stop drinking, it would have gone, I would have gone, can really gone downhill. And I did not want to do that. I had a good position and I wanted to maintain it. Mm-hmm. So as a result, I had to um, stabilize myself. And that's when I got into AA. Mm. Did you intuitively know that though, that you needed to stop or were there signs coming in from the rest of your life that were telling you you needed to stop? Signs were coming in from the rest of my life. And my children, I wanted them to be proud of their father and they couldn't have been the way I was going. So some of your behavior was was that coming to the surface or being pointed out to you by others when you were drinking? It was being pointed out to me and All I can say is that uh, I just wish I had stopped earlier. That's the first time I think I've ever asked that question of all the interviews that I've done about what age would you have wanted to stop. You said an age well into your adulthood, which to me makes sense because I didn't stop till I was almost 31. Okay. And I had to experience what I had to experience to get to that point. It seems like the point at which we get sober is the point when we're supposed to or meant to. Yeah, it appears that way, or it did with me anyway. So what was going on in early August of 1983 for you, right before you stopped drinking? I had been through two divorces. Mm. Uh, My children were not very happy with me. I knew that if I continued drinking, that my job was, since I was in the financial business, I I could uh, endanger some people's financial lives. Sure. And I didn't want to do that at all. So... those pressures finally got to me and I had to make the decision. Mm. And when you made that decision, uh, what was the first thing that came to your mind about how to stop? In other other words, how did you try to stop it at the very beginning? Of course, like a lot of fellows in my position, uh, they felt that they could just stop it as quickly as it started. Uh Uh, That's incorrect. It never worked. That way, that way, and as long as I tried to stop it, and <clears throat> I talked to priests, I talked to counselors. Uh, my wife talked to me strongly about it. It finally came to me that if I didn't stop it, I was going to go down the tubes, and I didn't want to do that. So I had to stop, and the only way that I knew how to do that was to come into uh, an organization like AA. Mm -hmm. I knew nothing about AA. I had never been to a meeting, Mm -hmm. but I understood from friends of mine that had joined AA that it really worked very well and it's a comfortable place. So Mm. that's where I went. So you had friends who were actually in the program who gave you a little bit of feedback about it? A couple of friends, yeah. That's great. So you didn't go through any sort of treatment program or anything else like that? No, I never did. I look back on it now and I wish I had, but uh, that's in the past. And I did not go to a treatment situation. Um, I decided to stop drinking and it almost drove me crazy. What, the withdrawals? Yeah, the withdrawal. 
was very hard. So uh, I finally got into AA, got a good sponsor, who I still have. And because of that, uh, I was able to lean on him and lean on the program and then begin to lean on myself where I could stop it comfortably. Hmm. So you had that physical withdrawal going into it. During that withdrawal period, did you feel like it wasn't worth it? Was the withdrawal bad enough that gave you that kind of thinking? Well, it's been so long, Howard, uh, I'm not sure I can remember that. The feeling was there for a while, uh, I can tell you that. I, I really wanted to just say the heck with it all and just keep drinking and, you know, whatever came of that. But I knew I had to stop if I wanted all these other things in my life. Uh, a happy, happy family and great kids and kids who respected me. I stopped and got into AA, got a good sponsor, and he talked with me and mm -hmm. helped me, uh, guided me, and I still have him today, which mm -hmm. is 30 some, some years when I'm, since I've been with him. Before you went into AA and before you made the decision to stop, did you connect the dots between your drinking and the things that were happening to you? Did you have other reasons why those things happened outside of the fact that you were drinking? At the time I stopped, I was concerned about my health. Mm -hmm. um, I was concerned about the uh, closeness of my family, and I knew that I could not continue to drink and drink sociably. That's, that's the big deal. When I stopped, I told my wife that I was going to learn to drink sociably. Well, <laughs> what does that, that look that, like? That's a laugh. <laughs> what does that look like? <laughs> I've never known an alcoholic who's been able to do that. <laughs> no. Well, you look at one that was not able to do it either. Uh, you just can't drink sociably when you're hooked on booze. So uh, that's why I went to, to, uh, to my sponsor, who is strong, and he's very, uh, very good at talking and visiting. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, he and I hit it off very well at, at first, and we did later on, certainly. But <clears throat> we, had, we had a good togetherness, and we grew together, and it, I'm very pleased that we did. That's a real special bond, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. By the time you stopped drinking, how long had you been drinking in your life to that point? I started drinking beer when I was 17, 18. Mm. And by the time I was in my mid-twenties, I was into vodka and whiskey. About my mid-thirties, I was pretty much on scotch and, and vodka. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I couldn't continue that and go to work at 8.30 or 9 o'clock in the morning. And since I was working with a lot of clients and their finances, uh, it wouldn't take but one or two really bad decisions on my part that I would lose my position mm. and my job. So that really influenced me. And then when the kids started asking me if I was going to quit, uh, I knew that, that the jig was up. I had to stop. Yeah. How, how did that, in what ways did that influence you? I mean, you had bosses and other people that 
you had a few of these mistakes would be the end for you. But you still drank during that period. Were you able, did you just not drink around work at all or just confine it to evenings and weekends? Yes. Uh, I confine it to uh, six o'clock at night huh. or later, uh, or confine it to uh, Saturdays and Sundays. As my children got older, uh, I had less of a chance to drink because they were watchful about everything I was doing. Yeah. So I felt like I was uh, on a pedestal and uh, I was going to fall off any minute if I kept drinking. So that was it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of people will stop is because of their kids yeah. or their wives. I stopped because my wife, we were married only a year and a half at the time and, and things were going downhill very, very rapidly. And I, I knew I had some choices to make to yes. either stop or lose the marriage. Yes. And, uh, of course, that was, a, that was a, a, a big issue. So somebody who could drink in the evenings and on weekends is to one extent or another controlling their drinking, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. And then that's what I ended up doing, controlling my drinking. But it got to a point where the what liquor was doing to me was I, I couldn't cut it off at a certain point and mm -hmm. feel mentally able to work and work for my clients. It would stretch, you know, and it was like I by the time I, f I went to AA, it was like I was drinking or I had the feeling I had been drinking almost all day long. So all this is going on, the kids are, when you say you were influencing the kids with the drinking, um, how old were they when you first started to realize they were watching you clo very closely? I guess the oldest one was about uh, 17, 18. So you'd been drinking that whole time till he got to that age? So he had seen it over the years? Yes. Huh. Did they ever, when, when they were younger, did they ever ask you to stop? Or did you ever get the sense that they wanted you to stop? At first, no. But after it carried on and carried on, um, the way my wife was feeling about it, it came to my children, and they began feeling that way about it, that I should stop. You can't run away. I, I shouldn't say you. We, I couldn't run away from the fact that I wanted to drink I enjoyed drinking, and I had to stop. I knew that. All my job was in jeopardy, and my position was in jeopardy, and I, I couldn't allow that to happen. And that's often enough reason for people to stop. Yes. Right there. It sounds that's like right. it was for you. Now, did all this drinking, you mentioned two divorces. Did drinking play a, a part in, in those two occurrences in your life? Uh, I would say yes in both instances. Yeah. 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 They, they would, it was just, drinking was like a simmering little fire in the corner of the room. And the more I drank, the bigger the fire became. Huh. Fire meaning that my wife was, or wives were very upset with me for it. Uh, that I was being accused of having a much totally different personality when I was drinking. Uh, I was told that if I continued drinking and they got a divorce, that they would get a, a divorce stated that because of my drinking, I was dangerous to be around. 
and uh, you know when when a wife gets filled up with enough stuff that is i don't mean booze i mean when 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 wives get filled up with enough bad stuff that the husband's doing um watch out yeah they they will let you know know in certain terms that enough is enough right and that's what happened to me so they knew that you were drinking too much and that was affecting the marriage, yeah. stoking that fire over there in the corner. What were you telling yourself and what were you telling them about why you were drinking and why you shouldn't stop? Initially, I was telling them that it relieved me a little bit of being nervous and being upside, uptight. It, it just gave me a chance to relax a little bit. That's what I told them initially. Uh, but over a period of time, they could tell that it was a, a, a bull-faced lie. In what way? Well, because I said I would drink only because I wanted to relax a little bit with it, but I was hooked on it. Hmm. And although they couldn't understand alcoholism per se, mm-hmm. they could understand what was happening to me be, as, as a result of alcoholism. So I think that all came together and uh, I finally decided enough is enough. What steps did you take to either revive or save the marriage, or were you just at the point where you were willing to let the marriage go for your drinking? I got to the point rather quickly that I'd let the marriage go because of my drinking. I could not stop after I got hooked on it, and it was habitual, and I had to keep drinking. So at that point, in a way that maybe you didn't understand then, you were saying, Drinking was more important to you than being married. Is that a safe assumption? Uh, I guess that's another way of saying what I just said. Yeah. But uh, I, I wasn't thinking that at the time. I was thinking that I would slow down on my drinking, and instead of drinking hot vodka or uh, booze, I would drink beer or wine. And all of that stuff is... Uh, you know, just water under the bridge. It w- didn't work. It wouldn't work. And I wanted to have something stronger to drink. So you had a whole lot of evidence all around you that things are not working out because of the drinking. Yes, absolutely. But we find ways to justify it no matter what. I mean, I was I was that way too. And to me, that's irrational thinking with irrational meaning. Totally. Ignoring the rational part of judgment. Yes, and going with the irrational part of it as a new reality. I agree. I wish it didn't happen that way, but it did. It's another reason why I decided to stop and get into AA and stay with my sponsor and really do the very best I could to try, earnestly to try, to stop drinking. And once I started the program, I was able to stop it. Of course, I went to a lot of meetings, and I had a lot of people say, boy, keep it up. That's amazing that you, you, know, you were able to get to that point after so many years and so much happening as a consequence of your drinking. I mean, most people, they may go through one divorce or they may go through marital strains, until they get enough self-knowledge about their own disease to do something about it. But to have to go through two divorces yeah. to get to the point at which you were ready to make that decision, that must have been really tough. It was tough, 
emotionally it was tough on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though, you know, I was full of vodka and scotch, it still made a point to me, to my mind, that I really, I'm, I'm screwing up and I don't want to screw up the children. I don't want to goof up another wife. Uh, so all of these things were working for me or against me. You, did you grow up in New York City? New York City. Whereabouts? Uh, in the Bronx, the north part of the Bronx. What was that like growing up? I was lucky enough to live in an area that had grass growing and trees growing. And, really? And flowers. Um, it was in the very north part of the Bronx near Westchester County. Mm, so mm-hmm. it was really in a, in a good area. But I had to go to... Uh, <laughs> when I went to high school, I went to a place called Cardinal Hayes High School. And that was down at 149th Street, and I lived up at 233rd Street, which is a long way to go in the city. <clears throat> the uh, 149th Street was a terrible place, and I wouldn't, I didn't want to walk even by myself there. And that was at a time when I was a good athlete, and I was in football and swimming and so forth. Uh, today, I get uh, news bulletins from the Cardinal Hayes High School and also from Fordham University. Uh-huh. And, and I look at the people, and uh, <clears throat> it's not the same people I went to school with. I mean, they're different. And I don't know if it's their age only or what, what, what the difference is, but it's, um, I could not go back to school where I went to high school today if I had to. I would go out of town if I could and go somewhere else. It just, it's not a comfortable feeling. Yeah. Do you ever get back and take a look around the old neighborhood? Uh, I've been back about a year and a half ago. Really? What was that like for you? It, the best way I can explain it is, wow, has this gone down? <laughs> it's gone down. <laughs> yeah. Just the overall location yeah. uh, has deteriorated. But the school's still good, isn't still, it? School's still good. Fordham University is still good. Cardinal Hayes High School is Cardinal Hayes High School has all probably very few white students, but more uh, Spanish and black students. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's okay because they're they're apparently good kids and. Come and that's the demographics of the neighborhood too, that's right. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Is that a jet? Was that a, a Jesuit, Jesuit school? And so you went to Fordham after high school. Yeah. Wow, that was kind of a direct link right there between Cardinal Hayes and well, Fordham? It's not necessarily so, but I made it a direct link. It was easy for me to go out of Fordham, uh, out of Cardinal Hayes High School and go into Fordham University. Uh, a high school had Jesuit, some Jesuit priests, some uh, brothers, uh, no sisters. It was all boys. And then Fordham University was a Jesuit, 
It's the main Jesuit college in New York City. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Is there alcoholism that runs in your family? In your, in no, your. That's the strange part. I had some distant uncles who were alcoholics, uh -huh. but my mother didn't drink, my father didn't drink, and I, I was the only child. So, <clears throat> in the immediate family, there there was no drinking influence. No. And, and when you drank for the first time at 18, were you doing it just as experimentation? Did you know what to expect when you drank? Or what was the, your experience like when you first drank? I enjoyed it. Hmm. I enjoyed the relief that I got from the realism of life and uh, the pressure of the job and so forth. But when I finally decided to stop, I was concerned that I was going to lose everything else that I had, including my third wife and the children. And that was a great uh, emotional interference for me to, to stop. And that helped me to, when I sat down with my sponsor, to talk about it and to discuss it. And that's, that played a big part in my stopping drinking. And you got the five kids that were all from the third marriage? Oh no, they were from my first marriage. From your first yeah. marriage? What was that divorce like on them? They, nobody ever came right out and said what it was like. Uh, but over the years, I was able to keep uh, my ear to the, to the wall, so to speak, to, to hear comments from the children. And they would, I don't know if it's intuitive, but they would say things from time to time indicating that they were very glad I was finished drinking or they're sure glad I put the cork in the bottle and stopped it. Uh, their lives are much happier when after I stopped drinking. Uh -huh. And of course my wife felt that way too. So the divorce happened after you had the five kids by your first marriage? That's right. And then you got divorced at the end when the five kids were in that family. Then you get divorced. Right. Then you get remarried and you take those kids into the new family. Right. And then that happens a third time. Or by that time, are they old enough to? Yeah, they were old enough to, to be somewhat on their own, to understand dad better, to understand their mother better, and their, their birthing mother. So I have to think that there's a lot of alcoholism out there in families that have gone through or will are going through the same thing I went through. Perhaps not as bad, but as long as the husband keeps drinking mm -hmm. and things begin to fall by the wayside, paying the bills on time, bringing the children up correctly, mm -hmm. And that was another thing. Uh, <clears throat> the more I drank, the less they listened to me because he was just another drunk talking. Hmm. And that, that really, that hurt. Yeah. That's heartbreaking, isn't it? Hmm. So they survived that first breakup of that marriage. How long were you married the first time? To their mother, about 23 years. Okay. So by the time you got married the second time, most of them were? They were uh, mid to late teens. Uh, of course, now uh, <laughs> my youngest grandchild is is uh, twenty years old. Isn't that amazing. So yeah, things are much better at the house now. <laughs> Did your first two wives 
Did either one of them engage in Al-Anon or anything to help themselves? One did. What was the outcome of that? She was able to uh, secure enough votes on her side that she was convinced that she had to get away from me because I was drinking. And, and, and she did. She, she divorced me. But the children absorbed it, it seemed to absorb it as they were growing up because they were getting older and more mature and more interested in their uh, work at school or in their sports. They're all, most of them were all good at sports. Mm -hmm. uh, and as that continued, as their maturity continued, things got less important in the house. Mm -hmm. And my second wife that was divorced, was um, she was not screamingly mad at me, but she was disgusted with me. Mm. And uh, that's the, the best I can say for that marriage. We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook that I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book and in paperback from Amazon if you'd like to read along with the audio. You're going to love it. And we're back. I've talked to other people that when their spouse went into Al-Anon, they actually copped a resentment against Al-Anon because it was like Al-Anon was continuing to expose more and more of what they were like as an alcoholic as opposed to whatever blissful ignorance there is for the, the wife, let's say in that case, about their husband's alcoholism. They know that there's now a way out through Al-Anon. That's right. Did you feel any resentment towards Al-Anon whenever it was she was participating? I did, but I realized that the, the basis of, the, of her getting mad was my drinking, not her going into Al-Anon. She used Al-Anon to lean on. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm sure the ladies in Al-Anon all told her what a mistake it was to stay with the drunk. Mm. But even today, I, I hear that comment from time to time from different people. Um, the Al-Anon was very helpful. The Al-Anon, how can I put it, association, uh, the leadership in, in Al-Anon was, was really uh, very helpful to my second wife that, I, that was divorced. Um, and Al-Anon gave them a, something to lean on, something to hold on to, uh -huh. something to believe in. Yeah, uh, and uh, that's they didn't have that before they before she went into Al-Anon. Yeah, it's like the Al-Anon program is don't lose hope, but do something that's about right. it. Right? Isn't that right? Exactly. Now you've participated over the years in the Chapter Nine meetings where yeah. both spouses go to a Chapter Nine meeting. How how many years were you doing that? When when are you still doing that Chapter Nine meetings? Yes. 
What would you say about that for people who aren't familiar with uh, Chapter 9 meetings? Well, I still attend Chapter 9 meetings almost every Saturday night. And uh, all I can say is that it does much more for the wife than it does for the husband. If I'm AA and my wife is in Al-Anon, she's getting a lot more out of Al-Anon than sometimes I used to get from AA. But I'm not, that's not a put out of AA. It's just simple how the personality accepted both of these organizations. Now my wife uh, is in is Al-Anon. She tries to go to one or two meetings a week. That's great. Uh, I don't have to say anything about drinking to her because she's been there and understands the, all of that. And uh, we get along okay. Of course, I'm not drinking either. Oh, of course. Would you say that that Chapter 9, which for anybody listening, Chapter 9 in the big book is the family afterwards. Yes. That's where the name Chapter 9 comes from. On an ongoing basis, you, you said you saw a difference in her? Yes. As participating in Al-Anon? Yeah. I often wondered how that, how that works because I've gone to Al-Anon meetings over the years. Not a whole lot of them, but enough in a period of time. A number of years ago when I needed to. And there, there seemed to be a lot of, let's say, uncomfortability whenever I would show up as an active alcoholic in recovery in an Al-Anon meeting. I always felt like the spotlight was on me, especially as some of the newer members of the Al-Anon were discussing their issues with their alcoholic husband. This is, I'm talking about in meetings where there were a sufficient number of women. What was it like when you first started to share in that chapter nine meeting in front of your wife? Uh, I don't think we shared too much initially when she started going to Al-Anon. I understood that, and I still do today, that Al-Anon is really a great helping aid to the wife. Because if the husband is drinking and really has a problem with alcohol, Mm -hmm. the wife needs something or somebody or some group to feel like she's supported. And I don't mean financially, I mean supported. Get a pat on the back from people which is what Al-Anon does many times. And I think that's great. Yeah, yeah, they do a good job of it. Yeah. I tried the Chapter 9 meeting with my wife, and uh, I was really, really hoping that she would really get interested in it. And then she went to some Al-Anon meetings. But, and, and when she first made the decision to not go back and not want to go, and I'd say, let's go to the Chapter 9 meeting, or why don't you go to an Al-Anon meeting? Uh, in fact, there was a time at which I said to her, I would get home and I'd say, I will watch the kids, and this is when our kids were small, I will watch the kids if you go to an Al-Anon meeting. And she took great offense at that. She said, you mean if I just want to go to the mall or to hang out with my sister, you won't watch the children? So what I was trying to do was influence her to go by offering to watch the kids if that's what she did. And uh, that never really worked out so well. So over the years, she has not participated in in Al-Anon, but she's found other ways in her life to be able to deal with me as a recovering alcoholic and other people in her family over the years who may have been active or recovered alcoholics. But it sounds to me like your wife has gotten quite enough out of it to want to keep doing it. I would say she's been successfully 
folded into Al-Anon, and she has many friends there. Uh, <clears throat> she gets strength there. If I'm not giving a tour at home, mm -hmm. she's getting strength by talking to some of her friends, and her friends tell her about their husbands or what's going on in their house and so forth. Yeah, do you, ever, do you ever feel like what they're saying to you is not something they thought of, but something they just came home with from the meeting? Half the time. <laughs> at least half the time, yes. <laughs> I've been known over the years to have my wife say something like, don't give me that AA spiel, yeah. you know, because it's, whatever I'm saying sounds like it's something I would say in a meeting. I have to That's be very, right. very careful about that. Yeah. Uh, George, shifting gears for just a minute here, tell me about your early days in AA. What were those like for you? How did you feel going in the door and sitting in those meetings the first few weeks and months? What was, the, what was your feeling overall? Oh, that's, a, that's an excellent question. I don't think I've ever been asked that question. Overall, I would say that for the first month or two, mm -hmm. I felt lost. I felt uh, without friends. Mm. Uh, I felt as though she couldn't care if I was there or not, uh, she being the wife uh -huh. at the time. So it took me about at least two months, I would say, before I could uh, would miss the drinking. If I felt pressure from my wife or at the meeting uh, for the first couple of months, I w wish I could have had a drink, mm. even though... I knew it would kill me, but uh, it took about two months before I could go into a restaurant or a bar and not have a problem mm -hmm. wanting to drink. Uh, now, today, uh, I have no desire whatsoever. In fact, I will go get away from it. And I, if I see any of my children who are now adult children, uh, drinking a can of beer, it, it troubles me. I don't say anything to them. Yeah. They know how I feel. I can admit to you that I have the same concerns with my adult children. Uh, not, my, my daughter doesn't drink at all. She's never drank, and she's very much against She won't even date a guy who drinks. I mean, she's, she's very straight on that. My older son, you know, he'll, he'll have beer. He'll go out. He'll, but I haven't known him to have any problems with it. My younger son, he likes the evening cocktail. And what I have to be very careful of, because I notice myself wanting to pass judgment just watching the behavior I've seen, a small snapshot of their life. You know, oh, you're drinking a beer. Maybe you ought to not drink that. But that's about me. That's not about them. And I have to remember that when my son is trying to explain to me how to craft the perfect vodka martini, I have to remember I'm the alcoholic in this equation. <laughs> I'm the recovering alcoholic. Yes. He is not, and yes. until it, it, if he, God forbid, he does, but if he becomes one, then maybe something I say would make a difference. But he knows, because I've expressed to him in the past, if, if you ever get to the point with any drinking or any behavior that feels like it's getting out of control, I'm the go-to guy, and if you don't feel like I'm the guy, I'll point you out to some impartial third party. But to this day, I still have a difficult time watching them take a drink or drink a beer or know that at least one of them is smoking marijuana. Yep. I, because of my own experience with it, I want to have them feel that same way. But 
how can they possibly feel that same way if they haven't gone through what I've done right. to feel that way? That's right. Does that make yes. sense? Yeah, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. I have the same feelings. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. Even today, I have the same feelings. After all these years. What I was wondering about, and in fact, what I was trying to get to with that particular question, how you felt about the early days and months in AA. When you first started telling me about it, I envisioned a guy who was going to meetings but wasn't, let's, that weren't that inclusive of him, and perhaps there wasn't as much outgoingness of the group to you. Uh, it sounds like the first couple of months, and re with regard to your marriage and the outside world, were, were a little tough for you. But how about within AA? Did you feel included, or w did it take a while for you to feel like you were part of the tribe? Well, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> my personality, aside from drinking, is that I'm probably more quiet in a group mm -hmm. um, until I get to know the guys mm -hmm. and the people. Um, <clears throat> I would say that uh, I felt lonely. Hmm. I don't know how else to put it. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, but after a couple of months, and I began to fit right in with the, with the people, and they accepted me, and everything was fine. But it took a little bit of time. Yeah, that's that's how it was for me too when I came in, and it it may be one of the key reasons why I do things like greeting and other things because I think men and women need to feel comfortable from day one because. In the very first meetings people go to, we always say, you're the most important person in the room, and they focus on that person. I'm curious if, you know, just using our imagination here for a minute, if you, George, of today, could go back to one of those meetings in your first couple of months mm -hmm. sober and could talk to the men in that room about how they treat George then, what would you say to them? One of the loneliest times <clears throat> that an alcoholic can go through is when he comes back and people don't know how to treat him. They really don't. I didn't even know how to treat me for the first couple of months because it's a different feeling. You're on different sides of the table. And <clears throat> if you're used to being happy-go-lucky, the, the gift of the party, and all of that, and all of a sudden you came back and you don't drink, you don't, you're, you're not happy-go-lucky because you're sober and you're trying to understand how you are feeling about different things. Mm -hmm. it, it took a while for me to, to get through that. Yeah. Yeah. Even today sometimes when I come into a strange meeting, not so much an AA meeting, but any other meeting, uh, I'm rather quiet until I get to know the people. Yeah, I get that. But I know exactly what you're talking about because I, I, I observe it all the time. But I think part of our service work is that we, as a group of recovering alcoholics with more experience, should be the ones who go out of our way to make sure the new guy has what he needs. Absolutely. Whether, whether it's a handshake or just a group of people who know his name. And the newcomer isn't all, only the guy for whom it's his first meeting. It is people within their first weeks and months of sobriety. 
Yes. You know, there's nothing that makes me feel worse about a meeting than when I see a guy come in and nobody talks to him at all. Right. And I'm thinking, that guy, I, and I know he's new because he, he just picked up a desire chip two weeks ago and he walks in the room and nobody's around him. I'm yeah. thinking, wait a second, that's not right. Yeah. Not that we're, not that we're mollycoddling them, right? We're, yeah. we're, we're, but we tell them on day one, you're the most important person. And then on day two, Nobody knows who you are. That's, that's, that's a shock, don't you yes, think? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So by the time the group finally got you under their wing and you started to feel more comfortable with it, what were some of the things you did? And how soon did you get a sponsor? Well, I had a sponsor from the get-go. Uh-huh. Uh, I still have the same sponsor. You know who I'm talking about, I think. And I'm able to depend on his judgment. I, I know what, it's, what it is, and I enjoy his judgment. He is knowledgeable, he is uh, intelligent, and uh, he still knows how to have fun, but he's a little conservative like I am mm -hmm. at first. Uh, <clears throat> as far as uh, the, 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 the meetings that I go to today, uh, I don't have really any any holdback. I'm 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 me today when I go to a meeting. I'm yeah. natural today, and I'm I'm outgoing, and but I'm still conservative, right? And I'm still a little quiet, yeah. Until I get to know everything, but uh, that's that's my best answer that I can yeah. give you. That's me. From a personal standpoint, I just want to let you know, in no uncertain terms that being able to see you on a regular basis at our men's meetings on Thursday just really warms my heart. The fact that you're having lunch with us after that meeting, it just made, because I remember seeing you day after day, week after week, year after year, early on in my sobriety when we both went to that meeting over on the west yes. side. And then for a period of time, I think we were going to different meetings and I didn't see you for quite a while. Yeah. And then I started seeing you again at that Thursday meeting and I was like, you, you add such, vibrant energy to that meeting it makes me feel like the meeting is much more complete when you're there Thanks. and i do notice when you're not there the room feels just a little bit off when you're not there so i just want you to know that on on the front end thank you the, one of the things I, I like to ask people about is um what events have happened within your sobriety that really kind of tested or strained or pulled at your sobriety or your ability to make a good decision Oh my. With sobriety comes a certain relaxed feeling about many things. Mm. Driving, money, friends, children are much more adaptable. I am now more accessible even to myself mm -hmm. the, the only way I can really answer that is to say that after you after I have been sober for a number of years things are quite level I don't have to go out and look for something like a drink to settle me down mm -hmm. because I'm there already and that is one of the, the biggest favors that I got out of sobriety, which is 
a levelness to my personality mm. and which I can carry through when I'm in a group of people or I'm just meeting a, a single person. I, I don't mean single versus married. I mean no. one, person. one person. And truthfully, as you're getting older, as I'm getting older, I find that, and here I am, I'm 89 practically, uh, I feel very good about me and uh, comfortable about where I am in life. Yeah, and it shows. Thank you. It really does show, and I've, I've noticed it this week especially, and I notice it when I, when I see you uh, at other times. You know, one of the things we talked about before when I was asking you to do this interview was people wondering whether they could stay sober through certain events happening in their lives. I've had events happen in my life that were catastrophic, and I had a place to go and talk about it. So I went to AA. And then there were a couple of other things that happened in other areas of my life where early on, if you had said, do you think you'll be able to get through that with AA, I might have said no. Do you have any recollections of periods during your sobriety where you were able to look at it afterwards where you said, thank God I'm sober, thank God I've got the men I've got in my life, where if you hadn't had those things, you would have maybe not drank, maybe self-destructed or maybe caused harm or whatever else. Can you, can you think of some situations in your life that were like that? Yeah. I, even today, I can think about them. Or my wife comes, I walk in the house at night and she has a problem and or the finances aren't working out the way either of us thought. Uh, I, I don't get that excited about it. They're going to work out and we have the wherewithal to get through it. Mm -hmm. All I can say is that when I was drinking mm -hmm. and I would get these feelings, I would immediately turn to the bottle. Mm. And that didn't solve a thing. It just made matters worse. I'm able to look back now and say, I can, I can remember when this happened or that happened and I went back to the bottle and then it was terrible for two or three days in my life. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen anymore. I am much more level. I couldn't stand to go have a drink today because of my feelings about drinking and what it almost did to me. Yeah. It's an insidious, slow death. And if you don't catch it in time, you're done. Yeah. And, and you and I have both seen it take out men that we cared about and, yes. and, and loved while they were here. And some of them decided to check themselves out. Yeah. It's tragic when I see it. And I, I wonder what degree of pain must they have been in when they pulled the trigger or, or stepped off the chair with yes. a rope around their neck. But then I go to enough meetings and been to enough meetings over the years to hear about men who were facing the same situation that these guys committed suicide over and they somehow got through it with AA. So I'm encouraged by that fact. You know, if, if everybody who had that kind of pain or you know, trouble in their life that they had to end it and had no AA, I mean, where would there be a lot more funerals to yes. go to? I'm sure about that. I was curious about service work in your 40 years of your sobriety. How has that played out? I'm kind of sad about that. I have not been able to give the service, do service work as much as I would want to because I really, uh, until I retired, uh, I was really quite busy. I'm still busy. Uh, I do a lot of our own things at the house and I'm, I'm, I'm 
financial and otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. So when you have the opportunity to get with some of these younger guys who are, we don't see as many of them anymore. You know, I mean, there was a time at which that, that Tuesday night meeting that you and I used to go to over on the west side there, there were young, a lot of young guys in there. And then over time, I guess they found other meetings and other places to go. Yeah. Seems like, and maybe it's just because the baby boomers are getting older and, and that sort of thing. But I don't see as many young people around. Have you, have you noticed that at yes, all? Yes, I have noticed it. What do you think is the cause of that? <clears throat> I don't know. Uh, to, to be honest with you, I really don't know. Uh, we're just not getting uh, younger generations that we once had. AA makes it very easy, and Al-Anon makes it very easy to be comfortable in the program, in their, their respective programs. Right. I do not, I cannot answer that question. I don't know why they're not coming in. I suspect, and, and I know that's a difficult question to answer, uh, I suspect part of it is what I've noticed in doing all these interviews, the, the recurring themes that comes up for people who are going to treatment centers and then slipping and then going to another treatment center and then slipping is the, the handoff to AA. They're handing off a slippery baton. You know, they get the person sober, they get them all excited about staying sober. They may even take them to a few AA meetings, but then they release them. Yeah. And it's like the AA hand that's being extended just doesn't get taken. And I'm, I get really concerned about that. But AA is separate from treatment centers. I, I know that. But you and I both know that if anybody's going to have a chance at staying sober, it's probably the only one they got is right here Yeah. in this, in this deal, right. right? Right. What was there about this weekend that made you want to come? I had been thinking about coming to this uh, retreat for some time, for maybe six months. Yeah. And uh, about a month ago, my wife said, have you ever thought about going to one of those retreats? And I said, yeah, I have been. And I've thought about it. And I'd like to go. She said, well, why don't you? So I looked at her and I said, I will. Huh. At the next one. That's great. And that was oh, a couple of weeks ago, and here I am. So glad that you made the decision to do it. And, and Thank you. Uh, you know, I'd like to decode the reason why more people don't come, but as my sponsor used to say, you'll go when you need to go. You will find yourself driving there for the weekend, and yeah. I, I think that's a, that's a great way to look at it. And I'm so glad that you were able to sit down with me and do this today. I have enjoyed today, and I've enjoyed going through in my mind the answers to your questions. They're very good, and they... Uh, at my age, it's good to think about when I was younger and what I did and the mistakes I made and the mistakes I didn't make. Thank God for your presence in the program. I've always had a lot of respect for you and I honor your sobriety and your desire to stay sober. I don't think we can ever take our sobriety for granted no matter how old we get or how long we've been in the program. But you're one of those people that when I see you, I, I immediately know what contented sobriety looks at the age of almost 89. Well, George, I've enjoyed the hell out of this. This has been so much fun. And uh, again, I love you. I'm glad you're in my life. And you're just a really beautiful man. And thanks so much for doing this. It's a nice thing to say. I appreciate it. Thank you, Howard. You bet. Well, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, George M., for sharing his story. 
and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? Spread the word. And please take a minute to give it a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That will help others find it. Of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this podcast series by following the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.